Victor Lustig is famous for all the wrong reasons. This con man was able to sell, quote-unquote, the Eiffel Tower to unsuspecting people, not once, but two times. In 1925, the so-called Count Victor Lustig, an Austro-Hungarian con man with a lengthy criminal career behind him, went from America to Paris. There he commissioned stationery with the official seal of the French government. Next, he went to a well-regarded high-class hotel, presented himself as a government official, and wrote letters to the top people in the scrap metal industry, inviting them to a meeting in the hotel. At the meeting, he confided in them that for reasons he was not at liberty to discuss, that the French government was going to be tearing down the Eiffel Tower and the scrap metal was to be sold to the highest bidder. The bids flooded in along with the money. Lustig apparently pulled off this Eiffel Tower scam not once but at least twice. But when he finally went to jail in 1935, it was not because of this. He ran other scams. He went to jail for being caught running a massive counterfeit banknote ring. Through the centuries, some of the smartest people have fallen into cons and frauds and schemes. I'm sure some of you have heard of the Pyramid Scheme or the Ponzi Scheme, made famous after Charles Ponzi, or named after Charles Ponzi in 1920, who promised investors that they could double their investments in 90 days. While we are all warned that if something is too good to be true, then don't fall into it, many still fall into schemes and cons. Why? Because people fall into these traps because they all want to get rich quick. They all want to have the advantage over someone else. And also because the men and women who think up these schemes and these cons are intelligent and all they have to do is they have to outsmart you. Of course, being in a sinful, fallen world in which we live, that also plays a part in why there are so many frauds and cons and scams out there, even taking advantage of people when they're the most vulnerable, like during this coronavirus pandemic. Sadly, these things don't only play out in the outside world. They play out in the family unit. They play out amongst friends. They play out, sadly, even in the church itself. As we pick up our home series, having taken a 10-week pause for our lockdown series, we want to take a look at how family dysfunctions, how family unity is destroyed because one or two or three family members decide to play this con game, want to employ schemes and tactics, sad to say sometimes to use fraud to try to take advantage over a loved one. But it's not only contained into the family unit. Sometimes this can play out even amongst the closest of friends or even the community we call the church. We want to take a look at how tactics that we normally use to try to take advantage of others is really not only harmful, but at the end of the day is quite ineffective. You see, we want to see that tactics can be neutralized when we know about the truth of who God is and how He operates. Let's take a look and unpack this idea as we continue home series number seven, Tactics and Truth. When we understand that tactics can be neutralized by truth, we don't have to employ and play these games as we relate to family and friends. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis as we're going to be studying chapter 30, verses 25, to chapter 31, verse 18. As you're turning to Genesis chapter 30, by way of background, if you remember, Jacob is now living with his uncle Laban, having run away from his home in Canaan because his brother Esau is wanting to kill him. Esau is angry because Jacob seemingly steals his birthright and deceptively 
takes the blessing of their father Isaac, which Esau believed belonged to him. And so, father and mother told Jacob to run to Padam Aram to find safety in the home of his uncle Laban. It is in Padam Aram where we see that Laban tricks Jacob into marrying two of his daughters, Leah and Rachel. And we talked about the family strife with their children. And how Laban basically gets Jacob to basically work for free. Now we're going to see how two very intelligent people try to outsmart each other. And how they will employ three tactics. But in those tactics, God is going to present himself with three truths that will speak specifically to those tactics and show why those tactics are highly ineffective. Let me show you what I mean. Take a look with me at chapter 30, verses 25 to 28. And it came to pass, when Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said to Laban, Send me away, that I may go to my own place and to my country. Give me my wives and my children, for whom I have served you, and let me go. For you know my service, which I have done for you. And Laban said to him, Please stay, if I have found favor in your eyes, for I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. And he said, Name me your wage, and I will give it. Jacob has a growing family, two wives, eleven children, and he was ready to go back home. And so now he asks Laban for permission to go. But Laban wanted Jacob and his family to stay. And his reasoning is not as you might expect of a father of a grandfather. He doesn't want Jacob and his family to leave because he loved his daughters very much and couldn't bear to have them far away. It wasn't because his 11 grandchildren were going to be far away from him. It wasn't because he really loved Jacob and would miss him greatly. The reason in verse 27, we are told, is because Laban realized that God had blessed him because of Jacob. So in a sense, Jacob was Laban's lucky charm. Jacob was Laban's good luck amulet, you could call it. And so he liked having Jacob around. And he believed that if Jacob hung around, he would have more blessings. Blessings that Laban didn't want to lose. So Laban says, name your price. Stay, name your price, I will give it to you. And so the negotiation begins. There is no family love here. It's almost like a business deal. Verse 29 to 30. So Jacob said to him, You know how I have served you and how your livestock has been with me. For what you had before I came was little, and it has increased to a great amount. The Lord has blessed you since my coming, and now, when shall I also provide for my own house? Jacob affirms what Laban says and acknowledges that before his arrival, Laban didn't have many livestock to speak of. And when Laban left Jacob in charge of his livestock, it really grew because God blessed Jacob, and the spillover effect was on Laban's flocks. What Jacob was doing here was leveraging his position in this negotiation between him and Laban. He was saying, yes, you are right. It is because of me that you got wealthier. It's, it's me. It's through me that God is blessing you, which is true. But Jacob is using it in his negotiations. Now, let me stop here. I want to focus us on something. I want you to notice that both men are using God to gain for them some benefit. Laban is using God through Jacob to increase his blessing and his material wealth. Jacob, on the other hand, is using God to try to gain the advantage in his negotiation. We are seeing two highly intellectual people, intelligent people, trying to outsmart each other using God. For personal gain. And that's the tactic, the first tactic we want you to notice and understand. Number one, 
using God for personal gain. Using God for personal gain. Both are using a tactic that we all have used, whether you would want to admit it or not. And we're using God for our personal gain as a tactic to gain the advantage. Yes, it's true that God gives us great benefits and great blessings for being in a relationship with Him. He graciously gives us for free salvation and eternal life. It is a free gift from God for trusting in the finished work of His Son, Jesus Christ, who died in our place. But sadly, many use God for their own personal gains, whether it's Christians who twist Bible verses in the Scriptures and use it out of context to fit their own narrative. Or perhaps Christians who claim that this must be God's will, what happened to them and their actions must be God's will, when they have used sinful and unethical means to obtain something or to do something, they use spiritual justification of something God would never do, but they would include God's name there to give them some sort of spiritual backing or credibility. It's as if every person is trying to claim that God is on their side, as if God picks sides. It's not God is on our side. It's all of us on His side. Don't you forget that. But that's what happens. Different people use God differently, all sadly for personal gain. In fact, it begs the question, what is our motivation for wanting to be in relationship with the Lord? Why do you want to worship God? To get better grades? To get a better job? To have your company flourish? To have a better life? To not get sick? To have monetary gains? Or is your desire to be in fellowship with God so that you can grow deeper in a walk with Him so that you can understand that there is satisfaction and contentment in life even if you don't have very much monetarily? Or to gain a security and a peace that only an eternal life, an assured eternal life in the presence of God brings. Or perhaps you desire with the right motivation of being in relationship with God to know the purpose of why you are here on earth, to find significance in that. How we use God, how we are in fellowship with God often speaks to the motivation of why we want to be in fellowship with Him. And yet, in our competition with one another, in our families or amongst friends, in whatever unit you call a family, even in the church family, every person always wants God on their side. And so we have a very shallow view of why we want to be in relationship with Him. We only want Him on our side. Why do I stress so heavily on this? Because, my friends, the motivation of your walk with God will directly affect your spiritual life. Because what happens when He doesn't bless you as you so desire? Do you still want to have anything to do with Him? What if you don't get what you've prayed for? Would you still seek Him? The motivation of your walk with God will directly affect your spiritual life. What if God didn't bless Jacob? Would Laban still want him around? Pay him any sort of wages? Or if Jacob wasn't seemingly blessed by God, what leverage would he have in this negotiation to stay? There are profound implications that we need to think about when we employ this tactic of using God for personal gain. Sadly, many Christians use it to the great dysfunction of our family units and the strife and disillusionment it often brings. Look at verse 31 with me. And he said, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep your flocks. 
Laban asks Jacob what he wants. Jacob says, I don't want any monetary remunerations. Instead, this is what he proposes. Verses 32 to 33. Let me pass through all your flocks today, removing from there all the speckled and spotted sheep and all the brown ones among the lambs and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and these shall be my wages. So my righteousness will answer for me in time to come. When the subject of my wages come before you, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the lambs will be considered stolen if it is with me. Here's what Jacob is asking. Give me all the speckled and spotted sheep and goats and the dark-colored lambs. Jacob is saying that these will be the wages that he will have for taking care of Laban's flocks. Now the reasoning that Jacob gives Laban is that it will be easier to differentiate my flock from your flock, which is true. But as we're going to see later, Jacob's quick mind has a plan to increase his own flocks as he was the chief herdsman and the main caretaker of the flocks of Laban. You should know that goats and sheep that are speckled and spotted as well as dark-colored lambs were rarer and fewer because of genetics. And so Laban thinks this is a great idea and that he got the better deal and agrees to it. The schemer Laban thinks he has out-schemed the scheming Jacob. Look at verses 34 to 36. And Laban said, Oh, that it were according to your word. So he removed that day the male goats that were speckled and spotted. All the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had some white in it, and all the brown ones among the lambs, and gave them into the hand of his sons. Then he put three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. Laban agrees that he thinks this is a good idea. But he does something. He does a wraparound, end around. He finds a loophole in his agreement with Jacob. On that day, Laban removes all of the blemish sheep and goat and the darkened lambs that were currently in his flocks. And he does not give them to Jacob. But in a loophole, he gives them to his sons. He doesn't keep them himself, but he gives it to his sons. And to make sure that there is no crossbreeding and to make sure that Jacob doesn't claim any of the darkened sheep and goats accidentally or intentionally. He puts a far distance between the two flocks, three days' journey. So essentially, Jacob starts off taking care of Laban's flocks with all white lambs and all unblemished goats and sheep. He was starting with a severe disadvantage. And the actions of Laban, which you see here, is another type of tactic we often employ. Tactic number two, gaining the advantage. Everyone wants to gain the advantage. And Laban thinks he has gotten a head start or taken advantage of Jacob by quickly moving and making sure that there would be no basis or uh, no foundation by which Jacob could quickly grow his flock, removes all the blemish in his flock and gives them to his son, not Jacob. We call this a legal loophole. You know, when I read this, I find it funny that for a man who thinks that God's blessings come through Jacob, that he would treat Jacob like that. But that's how we all are. We're often blinded. We don't trust God enough to work it out. And so we've got a scheme using our own ways to gain the advantage. Because everyone wants to have the upper hand. And sometimes in our drive to take the advantage or have the advantage, it blinds us. And yes, I know there's such thing as a competitive advantage in the business world and even in the world of education. Gaining the advantage should never come in the form of sin or unethical means, which violates God's moral laws. And so that means if you want to gain a competitive advantage, it doesn't mean you're allowed to steal company secrets, 
of another company or if you want to have the advantage over a competing student, doesn't mean you cheat on a test. But you may say everyone's doing it. Everyone's doing everything they can to gain the advantage. What we're going to see is that there is a truth about God that will neutralize and negate any advantage we think we can gain through deceptive or unethical means. But it is a tactic that many people employ, and they think it will work for them. Now, at this point, you may say, poor Jacob, he's being taken advantage of by Laban again. Someone should warn him. This is a man you don't want to go into business with. He's a shrewd man. But I don't want you to feel too sorry for Jacob, because I believe that Jacob knew that Laban would pull a stunt like this. And he proposed it anyway because Jacob was a master tactician. He also knew how to gain the advantage. And he knew that it was to his advantage to be the chief herdsman as he would be able to control many things. And so both of them were trying to feel each other out, employing techniques to gain the advantage. Look at the third tactic. Verses 37 to 39. Now Jacob took for himself rods of green poplar and of the almond and chestnut trees, peeled white strips in them and exposed the white which was in the rods. And the rods which he had peeled he set before the flocks in the gutters and the watering trough where the flocks came to drink so that they should conceive when they came to drink. So the flocks conceived before the rods and the flocks brought forth streaked, speckled, and spotted. Now this may seem very odd to us. Jacob took branches from certain trees and peeled them to expose the white part of the branch. And then he took the peeled branches and put it into the watering trough where the flocks came to drink. And this somehow made the animals want to mate near the trough. It seemingly had a a magical effect that made the animals want to mate then and there and to have more speckled, spotted, and, and streaked sheep and goats that would be born. Now, anyone who knows a little bit of genetic science knows that this is superstition. You don't get blemish versus unblemished skin tones based on the white part of a branch of certain trees thrown into your water. This is not how you use a technique to get blemished animals. Purely superstition, perhaps a common belief among the herdsmen before the invention of genetics. Because in the laws of genetics and in the laws of hereditary science, with dominant and recessive genes that govern skin color, that would determine how the animals came out, Notice that Jacob employs a technique that you wouldn't say is of the Lord. In fact, Jacob does not once call on the Lord for help to guide his fortunes. He resorts to a bit of superstitious, common belief to achieve his goals. What we see here is a third tactic that's often employed. Number three, doing whatever it takes. Doing whatever it takes. You know, when you're fighting, when you seek to get the advantage over someone, sometimes you're so driven that you will do whatever it takes. Look at verse 40. Then Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the streaked and all the brown in the flock of Laban. And he put his own flocks by themselves and did not put them with Laban's flock. Then Jacob separates the dark-colored and the blemished flocks that were his and separated them so that they would not mate with what was Laban's flock. And of course, because of the laws of genetics, more would multiply that came out speckled, spotted, or streaked because they were not being crossbred with the white-colored flocks that belonged to Laban. And as the chief herdsman, he could concentrate on the mating of his own speckled, spotted, and streaked flocks. 
I'm sure you never would have thought you would be learning about animal crossbreeding in a sermon. How Jacob comes to learn about this technique could be from God's special wisdom given to him, or he had a keen eye to notice this trend. But whatever the case, it's a bit unethical on the part of Jacob. Jacob isn't playing fairly, as Laban also didn't play fairly. But we'll toss it aside and say, who cares? Because in a competition, whatever it takes is on the table. Look further, verses 41 and 42. And it came to pass, whenever the stronger livestock conceived that Jacob placed the rods before the eyes of the livestock in the gutters that they might conceive among the rods. But when the flocks were feeble, he did not put them in so that feebler were Laban's and stronger Jacob's. What Jacob did was he also mated the stronger animals with his flocks and the weaker ones with Laban's allotment. And so Jacob was really taking advantage of Laban Highly unethical, to say the least. But then again, this is the tactic of whatever it takes. Because of course, as you know, in love and war, as the saying goes, you do whatever it takes. Is that even right philosophy for a follower of Christ? Does Christianity teach us that we are to do whatever needs to be done to get our way? Or even to do it in the name of the Lord? Of course not. You know, Jacob didn't have to resort to this. I bring you back earlier when the Bible tells us that God blessed Jacob. Laban saw that God blessed Jacob and Jacob did not have to resort to these techniques. What drove Jacob to pursue this tactic of whatever it takes Why would he do something like this? We'll see more in the next chapter the reason. But seemingly, whatever it takes seemed to have worked. And it brought Jacob the advantage. He won. Look what happens. Verse 43. Thus the man, speaking of Jacob, became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks, female and male servants, and camels, and donkeys. Jacob prospered in all of this, and his flock became very large. But there is something missing in the commentary when the writer of Genesis notes this. He does not say that God blessed him. It was through a God-blessed experience that he gained all of this. Yes, God was involved to allow Jacob's scheme to prosper over Laban's But it was a man-made increase that was the driving force that God allowed. But here's the question. Who knows how much more Jacob could have prospered if he allowed God to take control and trust in him? That's the issue at times amongst families and amongst close friends who have a dysfunctional relationship or who are in disagreement or who are having issues. Everyone is scheming. Everyone is trying to take advantage of the other person. Everyone is doing whatever it takes to try to get the upper hand. And in the process, God is pushed out. And when God is pushed out, yes, He will allow some to win and some to lose. But if we'd only learned to leave those things in the hands of God, then perhaps the winners would have won more or the losers would not have lost. All would have won and all would have been content. In this chapter, what you see is that people will scheme. They will employ all sorts of unsavory tactics But as we will see, it is really the Lord's will that allows tactics to prosper or not. Three truths that will neutralize three tactics. And we're going to see three truths about 
how God works and who He is to show you that it will always supersede man's schemes, tactics, and plans. In fact, the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 9, reminds us of this. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Man can plan and scheme all that they want, but it is the Lord who plans and executes. Now look at chapter 31, verses 1 to 3. Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's son, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has acquired all his wealth. And Jacob saw the countenance of Laban, and indeed it was not favorable toward him as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. As you can imagine, Laban's sons aren't very pleased. Jacob's cousins see that his flocks are growing at, in a sense, their own expense. Their father's own flocks were not growing as fast. And so Jacob saw the tension growing on the faces of his cousins, and he knew that it was time to leave. It was also then that the Lord appeared to Jacob for the second time and said to him, it's time to return home. Verse 4 to 7. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field, to his flock, and said to them, I see your father's countenance, that it is not favorable toward me as before. But the God of my father has been with me. And you know that with all my might I have served your father. Yet your father has deceived me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not allow him to hurt me. Jacob talked with his wives and explained the situation and the growing tension and of God's revelation to him that it was time to go home. To our surprise, we find out in verse 7 that apparently Laban changed the wages, the original deal that he had with Jacob, ten times. Imagine, would you stick around if the deal of your work employment got changed ten times. If your boss changed your contract ten times, would you stay? Of course not. This Laban was a cunning man doing whatever it takes. I wouldn't have stuck around if he changed it the second time or the third time. But Jacob sticks around. Why? Because he still prospered. Because the Bible tells us God did not allow him to hurt me. That means God didn't allow the changing of the wages to affect his desired blessing for Jacob. And it is now that Jacob acknowledges that God didn't allow these wage changes to affect him and his prosperity. Now, we're going to see how Laban changed the rules and specifically how God didn't allow it to prosper. Take a look at verses 8 and 9. If Laban said thus, The speckled shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore speckled. And if he said thus, The streaked shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked. So God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. Do you remember the original agreement? All that was speckled and spotted were to be Jacob's. But apparently Laban changed it to only one type of blemish on the skin. And to everyone's surprise, when he changed the rules of the agreement to only one type of blemish, the flock, when it conceived, only bore that particular blemish that belonged to Jacob. And so Laban would switch it up again. And when he switched it up again, all that were born only bore that specific blemish. And there are only three options here. I have no idea how Laban changed it ten times. But the point is, every time Laban changed the rules, God allowed Jacob to win. I can only imagine how frustrating it must have been to Laban Every time, unbelievable, I changed the rules and 
Jacob still wins. You see, here's the first truth, number one. God cannot be controlled or manipulated. He is sovereign. God cannot be controlled or manipulated. He is sovereign. He's in control. That neutralizes the very first tactic that we talked about where men and women try to use God for their personal gain. Note that it's the other way around. God wanted to show Jacob that he, not Jacob, God was in control. And he also wanted to show Jacob that Laban wasn't in control. At the end of all of this, God is establishing the truth that he is in control. He is sovereign. And so it doesn't matter what rules or what games or what schemes or what frauds or whatever techniques or tactics you employ, God will always overrule if He does not desire for it to happen. God plays our game even better than we play our game. Why? Because He is the rule maker. He is sovereign. He is in control. I need you, my friends, to remember that. It is not God is on our side. It is we are on His side. We talk about having a personal God. It doesn't mean He is under our control. We don't tell Him what to do. We can't demand from Him anything. We need to humbly come to Him and ask what He desires. Ten times they've been changed the rules. Every time God just simply smiled and said, well, let's see how things should be played. Look at verses 10 to 12 as we take a look at the second truth. What's happening in verse 10 and 12 is that Jacob is explaining to his family the details of God's second revelation. In a sense, it's extrapolating on what he says in verse 3. And it happened at the time when the flocks conceived that I lifted my eyes and saw in a dream, and behold, the rams which leaped upon the flocks were streaked, speckled, and gray-spotted. Then the angel of God spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob... And I said, here I am. And he said, lift your eyes now and see. All the rams which leaped on the flocks are streaked, speckled, and gray-spotted. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. God saw what Laban was doing. And while unfair, God would not allow Laban's scheme to prosper. The focus of these verses on the fact that the Lord sees. Schemers, manipulators, who try to hide things from others should know that it doesn't matter how much they try to hide it or how hard they try to gain the advantage under the cover of darkness. The Lord sees all. You see, tactic two was all about gaining the advantage. But tactic two is neutralized with truth number two, and it's this. God is omniscient. God neutralizes all human advantage because He is omniscient. Omniscient means He is all-knowing. He sees all. And so we often try to gain the advantage by not allowing the other party to know. And so we scheme, and that often causes a lot of family dysfunction when someone isn't forthcoming There is no truth or transparency. But God is establishing the fact that He knows all and He sees all. So whatever we try to do to hide certain things, it will come out. That's why the Bible tells us the truth will set us free. I know that we as Christians remind ourselves of this truth to make us feel better if we are taken advantage of or if we've been fooled. We often tell each other, don't worry. God sees all. God knows all. But sometimes it doesn't provide the comfort that it should. And why is that? 
It's because we don't trust the character of God. Yes, we know it in our head, but it hasn't come to our heart. That's where we need to trust God even more. In Him and in His character. That He is always consistent in His character and in His ability to do what He says He can do. To know and acknowledge that God is omniscient, I hope helps us overcome our feelings of sadness and disappointment when we've been taken advantage of or when people have said things about us that are not true or have done things to us to take advantage of us. To take advantage of us. God will correct in His own time without the need for human manipulation. And sometimes we find out that God seemingly is silent. But because He sees all and He knows all, He is orchestrating it in such a way that through our difficult experiences, His best will will happen for us. I was recently reminded of the story of Oprah, one of TV's most successful talk show hosts. Before she became a talk show host, Her dream was to become a news broadcaster. But because of her race, she didn't get many opportunities. But her big break came when she was hired on to be a newscaster uh, in the city of Baltimore, a very large market on primetime news. But unbeknownst to her, her co-anchors and others didn't want her to be a news anchor because of who she was in her race. And so, pressured, the station manager, her TV station, removed her very quickly from the news anchor's desk and put her on a morning daytime TV show. She didn't like that, but that was the job. And as you can say, the rest is history. Because it was on that daytime morning show that soon developed into a talk show that would soon develop into the most watched talk show in the world. How about in your life? When people take advantage of you, can you take solace and comfort and strength in the fact that God is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent? He sees it all. God neutralizes every human advantage that mankind thinks they have on someone else. Unfair things will eventually be made right in this life or in the next. God's justice is based on His omniscience and that gives me peace in my heart. I hope it will give you peace in your heart as well. Look at verse 13 with me. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land, and return to the land of your family. You know, it's interesting that God identifies Himself as the God of Bethel. If you are unsure about the context of this, go back and listen to home number four, where God meets Jacob for the first time, and He calls it Bethel. And there, the major emphasis was that God established Himself and identified himself to Jacob as the one who will always be with him, who will take him far away from home, but will bring him back and will always be with him. In fact, that was what Jacob realized in the very last line of verse 3, that God said to him, I will be with you. The very promise that God made with Jacob at Bethel is still in effect. You see, the simple but life-changing truth that God tells us that He is with us, neutralizes tactic number three. If you remember tactic number three and family dysfunctions and family disagreements and disillusionment, is it's because men and women do whatever it takes. But here's truth number three. There's no need to resort to whatever it takes. The omnipotent God is with you. There is no need to resort to doing whatever it takes. Why? Because the omnipotent God is with you. If God is with you, who can be against you? The Bible verse reminds us of 
want you to think about that. Let that sink in. Here we are trying to accomplish our purpose and our desire and our will, doing whatever it takes. And yet, right next to us is the omnipotent God who can do whatever He wants to do. He's all-powerful. He can do the impossible. Now, He won't step in if He sees that we think we have, it, we have things under control. He'll, he'll let us do those things. Whenever we want to cede Him control, the omnipotent God is with us and He will act. Look at verses 14 and 15. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there still any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not considered strangers by him? For he has sold us and also completely consumed our money. Leah and Rachel completely sides with Jacob against their father because they know of his character and his reputation. He's even taken advantage of his own daughters, taken their own monies. Verses 16 to 18. For all these riches which God has taken from our Father are really ours and our children's. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do it. Then Jacob rose and set his sons and his wives on camels. And he carried away all his livestock and all his possessions which he had gained. His acquired livestock which he had gained in Padam Aram to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. What we see here is with the confidence of knowing that the omnipotent God is with him, Jacob leaves for Canaan. He doesn't ask for the permission of Laban. He doesn't need to. In fact, if you go back to chapter 30, verse 25, he wanted to leave then. And remember, he asked for Laban's permission. But God realized it wasn't at that moment when Jacob should leave. It was a crazy experience what Jacob went through with all of this spotted, speckled flocks and all this stuff. But now if Jacob had left in chapter 30, verse 25, he would have left with a big family and not many things to his possession. But now as he leaves without the permission of Laban, because God is with him, Jacob leaves a very wealthy man, walks away with the full support of his family. If he had left earlier, perhaps Leah and Rachel would not have wanted to go back with him to Canaan, a foreign land to them. But now, because of how Laban has exposed himself, taking advantage of their husband, they said, we're on board. We're going with you. He walks away with a greater resource more importantly, most importantly, he walks away with a greater sense and appreciation of who God is and what he can do. And this is an important lesson that Jacob will begin to wrestle with, literally, later, but figuratively now. Because for a fighter like Jacob, he needs to remember that he doesn't need to employ tactics, man-made tactics, he just needs to live out the truth of who God is and how He has revealed Himself and how He operates. In every family or friendship squabble, in every family dysfunction or disillusionment or division, it's often traced and exemplified because men and women have employed human tactics. Brothers and sisters have tried to take advantage of one another. Parents and children have done whatever it takes to get what they believe is owed them. And everyone is claiming that, especially if they're Christians, that God is on their side. God is with me. They use Bible verses. They use spiritual principles taken out of context. And no wonder Christians are not exempt from fighting. In fact, sadly, sometimes Christians fight worse than unbelievers. Why? Because they feel that they have the spiritual backing 
of a God who is on their side. I hope, my friends, that we will no longer employ tactics that can be easily neutralized by the truth of who God is. Everything that you have gone through, whatever you're going through in your families, can you take away this truth that we no longer need to use man-made tactics, but instead to live out the truth of who God is and what He can do. Because at the end of the day, the things that we do really is neutralized. Because if God wants things done a certain way, He will see to it that it will come to pass. So we might as well get on His side because God takes no sides. We should be on His side. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. It is a good reminder for all of us, including myself. Help us in our families, in our friendships, in our church families, if there, there are any dysfunctions and messiness in life, that we can weed out the human elements of it that are exacerbating these problems, that are making these problems more difficult, and that we simply lean on your truth, on the very character of who you are and what you can do to help bring restoration and redemption to our families, amongst our friends, in our community, so that we can clearly live out Christ-likeness to make an impact in an unbelieving world. Thank you for the lessons you have given all of us. May the Holy Spirit do the work of conviction in each heart today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.